Tom, you are a guy that I have watched first your clips, then the longer form podcast. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's something I want to do. Because when I watch anything business and startup related, I'm like, okay, I'm kind of bored with this. Maybe I want to watch something else. And what you've done is you've taken these stories and you've made them fun and you've made them make sense to a wider audience. And you've made them make sense to, I think, people just getting started. I hope so. so, yeah, it's it's inspirational. And for me, you know, doing this crazy ass rock and roll tour, popping into L.A. for 48 hours, it was a it, I jumped out, jumped for joy when I saw that you said, yeah, you can just come shoot in my studio. I was like, dude, that's awesome. So thanks for having me, man. Excited to have you. My question for you is usually you a, after you have like a big successful exit like you did did you immediately say I want to start making content I want to you had not or maybe you were thinking about it looking at it from a distance like one day how how did you go about doing that dude yeah, it was very different for me. So I, from the time I was 12, I knew that I wanted to be a storyteller. I mm. would have said filmmaker back in the day, but I knew I wanted to be a storyteller. And so I got into business so that I could control the resources. So I'd mm. met these very successful entrepreneurs. I was very frustrated trying to break into Hollywood. I had no idea how. And they said, you're coming to the world with your hand out. And if you want to control the art, you have to control the resources. So come with us and get rich. Mm. And I was like, yes, indeed. Sounds, that sounds good. amazing. Uh, I thought it would take 18 months. It took 15 years, but it worked. And so when I left Quest, it was literally my last day was a Monday and my first day at Impact Theory was a Tuesday. So just literally from one to the next started it wow. knowing that I knew what I wanted to build and it was finally time for me to actually go and build it. Right. So in a lot of ways, I felt like my life was on hold for 15 years. And so it was like really getting back to it. Right. Um, so yeah, there was no, no hesitation, no like, oh, I need to think about it. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Wow. So like this, this enormous business that you built at Quest was kind of like your road into doing the thing. The pure. It was like my car wash. Like if you know you're a, a kid yeah. trying to get the money for the trip. Yeah, uh, it's just a very long, very uh, detailed car wash. But yeah, we got there and and learned a lot of lessons about you better have passion for what you're doing. And so when we were building Quest, honestly, I was building it as if I this was all I was ever going to do for the rest of my mm -hmm. life because I had learned that the you can't guarantee success, but you can guarantee struggle. And so I was like, well, I want to make films, mm. but that is farther off. It's a harder game to play. It felt like with nutrition, it was going to be very hard, but I was very passionate about it. I had a reason to show up and fight every day that wasn't about money. Right. Um, and I hoped that it would turn into the thing that let me do what I really wanted to do. But if I'm honest, I wasn't, you know, just, I had already been in business for so long. I knew that I couldn't guarantee that it was going to work. And I could guarantee that it would be hard. And so I thought you better find a way to really attach to this emotionally. Mm. So did that and loved it every day and was really trying to do something special. But then when it worked, it was like, okay, I know what we're going to parlay this into. And was Quest, when you made the bet for yourself, hey, I'm going to do this. How long was the bet? I'm going to do this for two years. I'm going to do this for three years. I'm going to do this for... 15 fucking years. Yeah. What? In the beginning, in the beginning, the bet was 18 months. So I asked my wife for 18 months. I <laughs> okay. said, look, I think it's going to take 18 months and then we'll be making film. Cause she was also a filmmaker. Mm. 
And so I was like, you know, rock the housewife thing for 18 months, right? facilitate my life, make it easy for me. And then we'll get into movies together to be amazing. Right. And then every 18 months it was like, I just need 18 more. Just need 18 more. And then at six and a half years, you're like, Hey, about yeah, that. Yeah. She was like, this is starting to, I was so unhappy. That was her thing. She actually would have given me more time, more time if I was happy, but I wasn't. Mm. And so she was like, you're so unhappy. It's starting to damage our marriage. You need to make a change. And so I actually then went in and quit. This is a software company, right? Same guys okay. that end up co-founding Quest with me, uh, but we're building a software company at the time. Okay. And so these I, are guys that had a flexible platform. They were building a lot of stuff. Yeah. I mean, with... we had one thing at the time, uh -huh. but yeah, they had built other things before that. Okay. And they actually originally hired me as a copywriter, just as an employee. Okay. But they said, look, don't think of yourself as an employee. Act like a partner. You can become a partner. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, the only way for me to go and do the things I want to do in film, I'm going to have to work my way to partner. And so I took that very seriously, right. buckled down, tried to deliver more value than anybody else in the company. I used to show up every day saying, if it is to be, it is up to me. Mm. And I'm going to act as if I'm the only person here. And in the beginning, I just did not know what I was doing, but I brought so much energy and so much enthusiasm and people today, these kids today, they would look at me like I was out of my mind. Because I, to give you an idea, my wife and I ended up looking for a new apartment when I started working with them. Okay. And I said, okay, here's the rule. It can't be any more than seven minutes away from either of them. Uh -huh. So that if on a Saturday night they call me, I can be to either of their house in seven minutes. Yeah. And so we ended up finding an apartment that was that close. And I was just that hardcore. Like imagine being the copywriter, but <laughs> you're going that hard because you're like, I'm going to really climb up in this organization. I'm yeah. going to get where I want to go. I'm going to get this money so I can go do my thing. And so that was really transformational. And now being on the other side of that and having employees that you find one or two every now and then that act like mm -hmm. that. And it's like, oh, opportunities open up for them because they're just going so hard. Right. Well, it's just, it's, um, you have to suspend disbelief in that moment. You have to say, oh, the, the, copy, the copywriter can do this. The copywriter can pull this off. These guys, are, they're saying this for a reason. I believe in them. You know, I can keep pushing. I think a lot of people don't believe that. Mm. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to show here, show up here. It's, it's a, a dead end. It's not going to take me anywhere. So I'm just not even going to try. Yep. And that is horrible, horrible because I'm sitting here with you in your studio. And guess what, guys? The copywriter's doing, he's doing okay. Doing okay. He's doing okay. Yeah. So the 15 years part, that's another fucking that's conversation. That's thing, man. Look, and people need to be very thoughtful about who they take advice from. Because if you don't want my life, then I'm not the guy to listen to. Yeah. So you really have to have a plan, know what you want, mm -hmm. and then go after it. But the thing that really bums me out is as you know, the American dream dies, certainly compared to where it was when I was a kid, what's dying is what I call the only belief that matters. What I had growing up was I believed that if I put time and energy into getting better at something, I would actually get better. Mm -hmm. And once you realize that skills have utility, it's like, well, I just need to put time and energy into getting better at this thing. And then people can't stop me even if they want to. Mm. And so my favorite quote is from Kobe Bryant. And he said, booze don't block dunks. Meaning no matter how much people hate you, you can get so good that they can't stop you. Right. And there were the greatest recruiters in the world were paid ungodly amounts of money to go around the world to find the most talented people on planet Earth to pay them millions of dollars. And their only job was to stop Kobe Bryant from scoring points. And right. despite that, that man once scored 81 points in a single game. 
And it's just like, you really can get that good. And somewhere along the line, that message has gotten lost. And so even if the system is working against you, even if like corruption abounds, right. let's pretend so good. Let's yeah, pretend right? that that's the, that's what's really operating behind the scenes. Yeah. You can still get good enough to outperform the system. Yeah. And if people believe that, then they'll move in the right way. If they don't believe that they won't, they just give up. Yeah. It's, it's something that I see in my own organizations. You get the one person who shows up like a lunatic, probably the way that you showed up as the, as the young copywriter. And they must, in their heart, believe that thing. And maybe that's the most important story. The story that, not the, not the tactics or the, the time frame, just the fact that, hey, if you're that person showing up on the ground level, you, you can do it. You can pull it off. You just have to bust your ass. And you have to convince everyone that you want it more than them. And then you actually have to get good. And then you actually have to get good. Yeah. Well, the getting good part comes with, uh, I think, just getting those reps in. Dude, 15. I mean, you had plenty of reps over. Yeah. I had plenty of reps. Yeah. It's, uh, look, there is such a thing as minimum requirements. You do have to meet certain minimum requirements. Uh, I really want people to know, though, that bar is really low. Mm. And nobody expected me to be successful. My mom quietly assumed I was going to fail mm. when I left for college. Uh, when I asked my best friend you know, what he thought of my success, he was like, man, I was so surprised. I just assumed you were going to marshmallow your way through life. Huh. And when I asked for my now father-in-law's blessing to marry his daughter, he said no, because oh. he did not think I'd be able to take care of her. Sure. And, uh, it's, I don't think that any of them misidentified me. That's really where I was at the time. Interesting. And the only thing they, they couldn't account for was drive. I had the drive to get better. And, and you're, you're sort of like Gatsby, you know, light at the end of the, at the end of the, at the end of the bridge is a, is to get back into film. I yeah. mean, it's, it's beautiful in a way because you can go, there's two paths you can take, right? You can say, I'm going to earn my way into this thing and then I can do whatever the fuck I want. Or I can go right at that thing. The problem is if you go right at that thing and I've gone right at that thing, if you fail on that thing, whew, oh man, it's brutal. And you're, and you're, you have no resources. Mm. This is a, in a sense, LA is a town where you're going right at that thing where you don't control the resources. And so perhaps the strategy that your friends told you years ago was a, heck of a strategy yeah it worked i don't know that i would do it again but the the key is that the reason i don't know that i would do it again is because i've learned how to um break into a system how to create momentum from nothing so now that i understand how human psychology works i'm very confident that i could get a job in the industry work my way up make the relationships i need to deploy all the same tactics that i did to claw my way up in business uh -huh but do it there. And now I would be, you know, easy 15 plus years ahead in my journey of meeting the right people and all of that. So now knowing what I know, but would I have figured it out mm -hmm. in that industry? I don't know. Right. That's interesting. So even looking back, you say, well, if I use the same tools that I used in first software and then nutrition in entertainment mm -hmm. film, I probably would have done the same thing. Yeah, yeah. It, it's what I call the principles of, uh, the sorry, the physics of success. So the physics of success is, it's the ground level truth of how you get better at something. Mm -hmm. And so it really doesn't matter what industry you're talking about. If you do that cycle, you will get better. But 
you know, it's tough to know. It's like, I partly because of the partners that I ended up working with and the space that I ended up working, it's like, I ended up figuring out a lot of these principles. And so if I'd been in Hollywood, you know, where maybe it's a, and look, I'm not in it, so I can't say, but the outside sense of it is that people don't necessarily say what's true. They glad hand you, they never want to tell you no. So there's a lot of stringing you along. So I may not have just encountered the sort of hard stops and things. It may have been a more ambiguous mm-hmm. situation to try to navigate. Whereas the way that I came up as an entrepreneur, it was just a brutal environment, but it was very cut and dry, man. It was a true meritocracy. Yeah. And if you had the right idea, then you were going to go far. And if you didn't, you weren't. And Look, I watched it break a lot of people that just could not handle when they were wrong Mm. and they didn't have the right idea and they built their self-esteem around being right. And when you build your self-esteem around being right, every mistake is a sledgehammer to the face. (laughs) And I, I realized very quickly that the thing that was allowing me to be more successful than those around me was that I could emotionally soothe myself very quickly. Mm. So I could have a failure. It hurt. It made me think less of myself. I could stabilize myself emotionally and get back to work very fast Hmm. and other people could not. So they'd spend days like being traumatized, angry at the other person for the way they talk to them, whatever. And I was just like, none of that matters. I don't care. Being called names, whatever. It's like, I just need to get better at this thing. Right. And so I got really obsessed with the idea of separating the message from the messenger just being like, what's the lesson here? How do I get better? It doesn't matter that it's being uh, delivered in a very tactless way. If I can figure out what the lesson is, actually get better, that skill will have utility. I will be more useful. And I just knew if I can drive revenue for people, nothing else is going to matter. And so I got good at that and the rest is history. Yeah. If you could drive revenue and you're tolerable, you're good. Yeah. Now imagine if you drive revenue and you elevate other people, which was that my personality by nature, I want to help other people. Uh And so when you put those two together, you've got a really potent mix. I mean, my whole my whole belief system is built on um, if you can influence collaboration, you can do anything facts um, collaboration. And you know, my whole, my whole skits in this whole little ecosystem that I built rich versus really rich. It's really about one guy provides a little social grease that gets people to smile, laugh, think creatively and get back to work. Mm. And the other guy stops you in your tracks, stops traffic, stops the line to the espresso bar drives everyone crazy and then all they're thinking about is how much they hate your guts for the whole rest of the day as they provide shit customer service to every other person that goes behind you so good i don't want to say good or bad i'm going to say behavior that promotes creativity and collaboration quite literally improves the economic output of everything around you Mm. like a fucking magic spell when you walk in the room and the the other side of the the coin it just sucks value right out of society i think it it's like a you pull something out and you take it with you, mm. uh, and that's what I. That's what I think I unknowingly was doing with the skits, and then you read enough of the comments and you go, "Oh, there's like a, there's like an algorithm here that's being developed," and uh, well, I'm gonna write a book about it. But so, what's it gonna be called? Uh, really rich, yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, so I yeah, it's I signed a book deal um, with Hachette. It's coming out in about a year. So that's awesome. It's going to be on the shelf. Have you yeah. started writing already? Yeah. So the way I didn't know how to write a book or how to sell a book mm. or really how to find an agent or really do anything with a book. But I just, I was like, okay, I guess I got to find an agent. Mm. And then I handed him my, what I thought was a manuscript. He's like, dude, this is awesome. This is not a fucking manuscript. What the, what is this? You know? 
I was like, well, what are we going to do? He's like, I'm going to work with you to turn this into a, mm. a book proposal. And that's how you sell a, a, a work in nonfiction. You're like, I know, dude. I, Not at all. No, it's interesting no. to hear your journey. The other side of that, I will say, is brace yourself for selling it to the end customer and to the stores. Mm. It It is a far more complex animal than writing the book and getting the book sold. Yeah. That, that will truly be the easy part, and it will be hard as hell. But once you actually have to get out there and sell, you know, ideally hundreds of thousands or million plus copies, right. it's really, really, really hard. And so I assume given that you're on social now, you're already building your email database. But yeah. if you're not, start immediately. Go as hard as you can. I, I tell all first-time authors, and I have not written a book, but my wife has. So I've been by proxy. I've been mm-hmm. through this. The, your book sales are not about what you do when your book comes out. It's about what you did for the year leading mm. up to build that newsletter, to get a gazillion people who will say, yeah, I'll have you on my show for mm-hmm. you to promote the book. Um, it's about the offers that you put together, all that stuff, which is going to take a lot of time. So you really, really, really want to start now. Get that list robust. I am, dude. I just told you that. <laughs> come on. Like, I already said it. I already said it, dude. It's, come on. Yeah, I'm, I'm, pumped, I'm pumped about it because... For me, I don't have a like a theoretical foundation for what I'm doing. There's, people are just like, "Who? Mm. What is this guy? And what does he stand for?" And the book is the most organized, lo-fi way I can put it out there. Like when I was when I was talking to publishers, they're like, "You have a two, three million plus audience. You want to write a book? Like, just put out an ebook, mm. you know?" And I said, "I've." analyze all the different ways to get this information out multimedia different types of courses or maybe some kind of you know interactive thing and i was like i think a book is actually the best way to do this Hmm. i think it has the most staying power so james clear i'm coming for you bro get after it i'm coming for him so bad yeah books are their own thing man really does open up a new audience so I i hope it's i hope it underlines that message and makes it go beyond the skits mm. because uh i don't really want to i want to do this instead of the skits really yeah they're not as fun or they just put you in a box they put me in a box and i did them for i did them every day for a year and then i did them almost every day for another year mm. I, I had this incredible rapid growth but i had this moment where everyone knew me as perhaps an actor perhaps the co- a comedian and uh not too too shabby things to be called right but that's not really me right like i'm i don't know who i am but i'm probably not going to be a comedian i'm definitely not going to be a comedian and i'm definitely not going to be building out my future as an actor let's mm-hmm. put it that way so i had to really choose wh- what direction i was going to go forward and i mean I took a, I'm taking a huge risk by, it's like, oh, you guys like to laugh at all that cool shit? Okay, well, I really want to talk about entrepreneurship, and I really want to talk about how people treat other people, mm. and I want to get it to you in a more direct fashion through these kinds of conversations and talking to just tons and tons of founders. Um, the good news is most people are still along for the ride, because, uh, you know. It's amazing. It's a big switch up. <laughs> It's a huge switch up. Mm. The problem is with with um, the viral, the whole TikTok world, the viral skits and humor. It's number one. It's uh, anytime you use the word TikTok, you think the word trend, 
and by definition, a trend has a beginning and an end, mm. and there's people that are still in it after it's long over. And I just didn't want to be one of those creators. I didn't want to be one of those people. So I accidentally started creating TikToks anyway. So this, this wasn't, I feel like we had the opposite. You're like, I wish I just created, <laughs> went right to content. And I'm kind of like, I use content to get back to business mm. as opposed to use business to get to content. I found myself shutting down a business when I created my TikTok. I, I, sh I built an agency. I hit the numbers I wanted to hit. And then I was miserable. This was the second time I was miserable creating a, a successful business. Hmm. And I shut it down. I fired all my, I f fired all the clients. I told my girlfriend that I might be sleeping on her couch. And uh, she was like, that's cool. And uh, I created a, a TikTok a day or two later. And my 15 years was 17 days. It's a lot better. It's a lot better. Very so, wise. Yeah. My iteration and my, you know, hey, what are we going to do? It took, I, I gave myself 30 days. I said, I'm going to create one TikTok a day for 30 days. And on day 17 is when I created this weird thing called Rich versus Really Rich. And it did 5 million ish impressions. Um, uh, people were like, you're famous. Like, I, you're on dig.com. Like, I was like, what's dig.com? I'm in my mid. I don't even know what that is, and seriously, and that was the beginning of me creating TikToks. Wow, in my mid thirties, it's impressive. <laughs> it's something. It's cool, man. Yeah, like creating that kind of uh, attention, a machine that gets attention, is so difficult. So few people know how to do it, and if you can master that, and if you can do it over multiple disciplines, then you've really got something useful. The thing with short form is it was my reps to just making content. And then it was like, can we go a little longer? Can we, can we create these tutorials? Can we do things like this, right? And then we still take this and chop it down into little bites because I think mm -hmm. people want to start here, work their way up to the longer form. But I think it was great. I think it was great practice. It's just amazing. Short form creators, you're given an audience, but you're not given a future <laughs> you're not given any direction and you're and you're certainly not handed money you have to build the business from scratch there's no it's not like being a great youtuber mm. you're a great youtuber you look at your your adsense you're pulling in a you know you're pulling in a living creating long-form content mm. right short form not so much not so much i mean you know you guys do you chop up all your videos i'm sure you don't even look at your they pay like a few thousand bucks yeah you don't even probably look at it but the the whole thing with short form is you can become enormous a lot faster mm. so the velocity to getting audiences how are changed. you monetizing your audience i'm building businesses that's the only way to do it that you sell those products to or you market them to that audience yes so when i first it took me six months to find a brand deal i was getting brand offers in three months mm. and i signed my first one in six months, which I think was Honey. Um, it's a pretty good company to mm -hmm. do a brand deal, right? Um, and then I was making like hundreds of thousands of dollars doing TikToks. And I was like, well, this is pretty good. You know, not so bad. Uh, and then I realized, well, cool. You own none of this. You don't even own your channel. They could shut you down if mm -hmm. you ever, they, whoever that means, the they. It's like, your channel can disappear. You don't own it. 
um, these adver advertisers can pull out or they can just hit saturation. Like, okay, we're sick of Nick. Let's go hire another kid, right? And so I was like, I really don't have any leg to stand on. And I know a, a lot of sad stories in this space of, of guys that, you know, went all in on these brand deals. They were like, like this is a career. And then the, the brands aren't advertising. Mm -hmm. They're like, certainly not right now. So for me, I was like, okay, we got to go back into entrepreneur mode, which you're happy with, but only build stuff you believe in. Not, you know, not something that's going to, don't give yourself another shitty job, Nick. You've already done tons of shitty jobs. You know, you don't need another shitty job. You know, my start of my career on Wall Street, that was a fucked up job for me. I don't know why I was, I, I only wanted to get rich. And so I went to Wall Street and no one told me that it would suck so much and that I, I wasn't going to be the guy. I was a guy. I wasn't the guy. Mm. So I did that. And then I built some other businesses that ended up being the wrong business. So now what we're doing is we're building tools because what we're talking about is entrepreneurship, startups, getting started, the kind of young entrepreneur is where I'm, where I'm interested in building tools to help them grow their business and trying to build the right tools and experimenting. So, yeah, I mean, we put out, um, I built a generative AI sales tool that's like cheap and affordable. You send a ton of custom one-to-one -one emails to grow your business really affordably and cheaply. Um, and I just put something out called crowns list instead of like when you're advertising a brand on a social media platform, you literally own nothing. You don't own the field. You don't own the relation. It's just like you, it's just like you get paid for your time and, and that's it. So I created something called crowns list where I can actually showcase the companies and brands that I love, but in my own ecosystem. Um, so we just launched that. We'll see how it goes. Um, it's awesome, man. It's one of those things where you, in the short form world, which just appeared out of thin air, you, you really have to think on your feet, especially if you're a, a creator like me, where there's, there's value to what, an interest level to what we're talking about. I can't, but I'm not going to sell you a t-shirt. No one's buying the Nicholas Crown t-shirts yet, yet, yet. What is the most positive externality from creating impact theory? Like, do you just get smarter by talking to awesome people? Yeah. I mean, fair enough. So, uh, it does require me to do a lot of research. So I read somewhere between two to three books a week and then wow. have to synthesize that in order to be able to do the interview. And then also, Hey, I just read this book, but I did have some questions and now I get to sit across from them for a couple of hours and really ask. And so in the early days, I wasn't as hardcore about, I only want them on the show if I actually want to research mm. that subject. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm, I'm very hardcore. So I'm bringing people on where I deeply care about the issue. Uh, so I'm, I want to read the book. I want to take those notes. I want to get those questions answered. So it certainly has helped me have a reason to pursue my love of knowledge as mm. voraciously as possible. That's been wonderful. Uh, the biggest externality though is it, it's really twofold. So one, I'm really bad at networking, like unimaginably bad. And people always think I'm kidding until they meet me and then they're like, wow, this guy really is terrible at this. Uh, so having a show is a great honeypot for me to meet people sure. that I otherwise am just never going to meet out in the real world. Uh, and so that's been really effective to just expand my network and have amazing people that I can call and, you know, depending on what is needed. 
Right. So that's been really useful. And then the reason that I do all of this, because look, my wife and I had already made enough money. We never needed to work again. It's called impact theory because I really believe that the way to impact people at scale is through story, both in the form of ideas like what we're doing now. You're helping me tell my story. You're telling your story. Uh, People are going to learn from that. And for somebody, they're going to hear that piece of information in one of your interviews that that will actually change the course of their life. That's so meaningful to me. And so when I do that, somebody comes on and either from the guest or something I said, and they're just like, oh man, you have no idea. This one guy, I was in Vegas, comes running out of a store, grabs me by the arm, starts crying. And he was just like, I lost my job and my wife in the same year. And you were the only thing that got me through. Mm. And I was like, and that's why I do it. So, you know, meaning and purpose matters so much. And all the money in the world cannot give you meaning and purpose. And my wife and I were just hyper aware of that before we had money. And so when we got money, that's why, you know, literally the next day we started a new company. Yeah. When I had just met with someone earlier today that literally owns a company that works with high net worth individuals that are bored and sad Mm. and they have no idea what to do. I'm going to guess that's, that is probably the majority. It's, you know, oh, boo hoo. Right. And then you dig into it and it is utterly fascinating because you realize you're just looking in the mirror because mm-hmm. no matter if you have hundreds of millions of dollars or hundreds of dollars, that's it. You might not know what it is that makes you happy or what you want to do with your life because you've never taken the steps to plumb the depths of what that if even is, or even just giving yourself a fucking weekend to sit mm-hmm. down and be like, Hey man, what do I even like to do? Do I like to go, you know, to the Knicks game and, and get bombed with my friends or that's just what I've been doing right forever. And do you ever just take a step back and go, do I even like this? Yeah, most people do not. It is an obsession of mine, uh, making sure, you know, I've got these long range plans, but you have to constantly reassess and ask yourself, is this still what I want? The, the big problem though on this area that I find with people is I think they're gonna find their passion, but you don't find a passion, you create a passion. And so people think it's gonna be an archeological dig and they're gonna find something mm. and they don't realize it's an architectural build. So you have to go, okay, there's this thing over here that I'm interested in and I'm gonna choose to make this important in my life and I'm going to do the process of building desire to really attach myself to this, to add meaning and purpose to it so that I can really pursue this with everything that I've got. But when people think they meet somebody who they think, oh my God, but that person knows what they want. They're so lucky and why don't I? And the reality is that person almost certainly just discovered this process early in life. Maybe their parents pushed them into it or knew enough to encourage something and they fell in love and Mm. then that became their passion and so they dedicate their life to it. But everybody is gonna go through a period of having to go, this thing is interesting, but am I gonna dedicate my life to it? And then you spend enough time doing it and now all of a sudden you get in a reciprocal relationship with it where it's like the better I get at X, Y, Z, business, investing, playing the piano, whatever, it adds value to somebody else's life. And then I get this feedback loop of like, oh, whoa, like that helped you and you feel better and that makes me feel better. And now I wanna go do more of this. Mm -hmm. So once you get into that reciprocal loop, then it can be self-sustaining. But until somebody gets good enough at something that they can actually add value to somebody else's life, they just feel like, what am I doing? Like I'm wasting my time. And so people will distract themselves with money. And the problem is that when... 
depending on how long you spent chasing money and then you finally get it, that can be a really depressing moment mm-hmm. because you thought, okay, I'm going to suffer, 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 but then I'm going to have the money and everything's going to make sense. Yeah. And then you get the money and you're like, wait, I'm still as depressed as I was when I was chasing the money. What the hell? Like I thought this was the answer. And so now not only are you depressed, but you're depressed and you don't have a plan to get out of it. Yeah. Like most people, Hey, they can rock it. They can be depressed for a while because they think just get rich. And then as long as they have that carrot to chase, they're fine. But man, when, when you get handed that check, I, and I remember this very well, thankfully I'd already learned the lesson. So I knew better than to tie myself up in money. Uh-huh. But the way that I got rich was literally like normal life. And, and then, then rich. A, literally, instantly. Was Refresh it on the banking like a, app. It just was a direct. Yeah, you transfer. sell a piece of the company and then boom, <laughs> you're on a call with like nine lawyers and they're like, uh, transfer the money. Yes, transfer the money. Yes, transfer the money. It yes. has been complete. Yeah. And then they're just like, all right, in the next... 20 minutes or whatever it should come through. So my wife and I just stood there refreshing, refresh. Yeah, it was crazy. (laughs) And then it hits and you're like, oh my God, I'm still just as insecure as I ever was. Ah. And so it was literally hilarious to me. I was like, this is how people get themselves in trouble. Because if I thought this was going to cure my insecurities and then it didn't, and then I was like, oh my, Mm -hmm. you're telling me I'm going to feel this way forever? Yeah. That's where people implode. Because there's no backup plan. That was the answer. And the answer was a trick. (laughs) Now, for anybody listening, look, money is more powerful than people think. It's not less powerful, but it isn't the thing you think it is. Hmm. What is it? Money is the great facilitator. It's going to let you do things. But if you don't know what you want to do, all money does is remove the stress and let you play. Now, that will be fun for a while. And then it starts to not be fun. And people have to tease out why it's not fun that, you know, I don't know what I want to do with it, or I think I want to spend it to get these things. And I get these things and they make me happy, but only briefly. And so then I'm like chasing that high and like pushing. I want to buy bigger things, more things, take bigger risks like toys. Yeah. Toys, dopamine, like they're chasing all of it. And then really, really, truly more money, more problems. Uh So as you get, as people know that you have money, you're going to have people that circle you. They mm-hmm. want something from you. And so you really do very quickly have to come up with a way to deal with that. I get hit up almost every week of my life by somebody that wants money from me. And it could be a family member in dire straits. It could be an entrepreneur that wants me to invest. Mm-hmm. It could be uh, somebody who, you know, an entrepreneur I've known forever. And we're like side by side and they're rocking it and killing it. And then one day they're like, it's all collapsing and I need help. Mm-hmm. And so it gets, you know, it's, it's a thing. Like it's a thing you have to have a, an emotional um, way to deal with, to know what you say yes to, what you say no to, to be able to set boundaries. I mean, it's, it's a whole thing. And so if you get money and you haven't emotionally prepared yourself for it, it's a tricky game. Because it's, you're a big kid and you can do whatever you want when they put the check in your account. Yeah, and and then, that's the scary part. And it goes faster than people think. And so a lot of people get themselves in trouble. And yeah, man, and look, it's a funny game. But there's, a, there's some stat. I wish I knew where it came from. But it basically, nobody spends their whole life in the same socioeconomic bracket. It's not like you get rich and stay rich. Getting rich with my skill set. Getting rich was easier than staying rich. Hmm. That's been like a thing where I've had to like really pay attention and be like, okay, wait. Got to make sure this shit doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. Like when you think about uh, money printing uh, effectively being inflation. Right. It's like if you don't know how to invest to beat inflation. Yeah, you lose 5% every year. Forever. Every year, dude. And it compounds. So it's like you have to figure that game out. And I have been woefully inequipped. 
yeah. it's totally as the man from Wall Street knows. Yeah, it is a very different game. Yeah, and the <laughs> everyone needs each other's game. The entrepreneur needs the Wall Street game, and the Wall Street guy wishes he was the entrepreneur. I swear to God, it's just it's just a fact. Yeah, it's because both skill sets are super valuable. Yeah, yeah. I have some people close to me who have had some big exits, and they're the entrepreneur, and. I've got the little finance guy still in, in me, you know, and they have no fucking clue what the mm. hell they're like, wait, I can't just keep taking money out of this thing. I'm like, well, no, until it hits zero. <laughs> You're welcome to. Yeah. It's not a good strategy. Did you go through a phase of toys and playing around? And no, because you mentally had already decided that that wasn't a path. I, everyone, there's yeah. a, there's a theory that everyone needs to go through their stupidity phase. no, uh, look, I'm dumb so often. This is not me saying I have some unusual amount of wisdom. This is me saying I have one vice, and that is I want to build something that matters. Mm. So all the toys and all that, I've spent the same money. I've just put it into a business. Yeah. So if the business fails, then I'll look like a fool. If the business succeeds, I'll look like a genius. So yeah, it just comes down to can I pull this off, right? Yeah. But no, toys are not my thing. So the only thing that I spend money, quote unquote, irresponsibly on is manga. The good news is that manga is only like $9 per book. So These I are like uh, graphic crazy. novels. Yes, but it's a, it's, it's a different format. So, okay. But yes, you're close enough. Okay. Japan, I'm yes, this up. It, a Japanese. Japanese graphic novel okay. that that gets you very close. Okay, so somewhere in here there is a oh, serious collection, literally right behind us. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's good that your vice only costs nine bucks, but at scale, yeah, it's, yeah. It's yeah but at scale. I think if I bought every manga that is currently <laughs> Ever existed. yeah in print, uh, I'd still be fine. You'd still be okay. But yeah, yeah, the good news is, so I almost never buy it for myself. So for my birthday, for Christmas. I just tell my family, all I want is manga. Don't go crazy. <laughs> Keep it nice. And I don't want cars. I don't want fancy clothes. Dude, this is great. Like, just buy me some manga. What, what, where did that start? So I do have a collector's bug. That is okay. like a whole thing, but I don't like cars. Now, I would like to say, we're filming this in my ridiculously expensive house. Yeah. So I did have one thing that I was I like, wasn't going to say anything. I wasn't going to say anything. It's very kind. <laughs> uh, I've always wanted a big house. So that, that was my one thing. Okay. But I won't. It, it's the only house I have. I'm not like going to buy a whole bunch of houses. I right. have one car. It's over 10 years old now. I could not care less. Twice rats have built a nest in my car engine. <laughs> I do not care about cars. So no collecting of cars. Um, yeah, just uh, I love storytelling. There's a whole reason why I got into manga specifically because I used to collect Western comics. Mm. And then uh, for partly for business reasons, if I'm honest, I had to switch my taste over to Japanese style of storytelling, which is far more popular. Really? Now. Okay. Far more popular. Uh, so I knew if I didn't master that style of storytelling, we'd be in trouble. The, for the, for Quest? For Impact Theory. Oh. Can you explain this to me? Yeah, so my, my whole thesis is that you can embed the growth mindset inside of a story. And if you think about Star Wars was the perfect example. So Star Wars changed my life. Introduced me to a character named Yoda. And yes, I know technically it's the Empire Strikes Back uh, for, for the hardcore geeks. Okay, yeah. No, I'm like, yeah, you're, don't worry about me. Yeah, you're I'm not going to call you out on anything. Uh, so that introduced me to Yoda. Yoda's advice is real. So if you take his advice, your life will actually be better. And my friend, when I was 15 or 16, gave me the Tao Te Ching. And I'm reading it. And I'm like, this guy talks exactly like Yoda. 
Of course, I'm sure it's largely where George Lucas drew the inspiration okay. for the character. So I was like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. So then I really get into Taoism and for a while called myself a Taoist. And that was like my first step into self-improvement was all the philosophies in there, basically about not getting trapped inside of what I know, it's not what they call it in the book, but what I'll call your frame of reference. And the whole book, if I were to really overly simplify it, is designed to be a series of almost poems designed to snap you out of your frame of reference to get you to understand that you see the world through a funhouse mirror. Mm. And since you're looking at the world through a distortion, you should at least either try to see things as they actually are, or at least distort the mirror in a way that's useful. Hmm. And so that set me on a path. So anyway, I start thinking about, okay, I, you can take these ideas, which changed my life, took me from scrounging my couch cushions to find enough change to put gas in my car, to building and selling a billion dollar business. So I'm just obsessed with the idea that the only difference between the average person and somebody who becomes successful is a set of ideas. It's not mm -hmm. that person, you don't have to be super intelligent, you have to meet minimum requirements, but you don't have to be super intelligent, you can just be an average person. If you use the right mindset, the right ideas, right. you're gonna get there because of what I call the physics of progress, it just is the way the world works. So, okay, I wanna embed these ideas in story. We started doing, Comics is just a traditional feeder into film and television. Okay. So I'm like, it's a, it's a cheap way to build IP, to build a relationship with the customer, and then you go sell it to Hollywood, and they make it, and they go, hey, there's already 100,000 people or whatever that mm. know about this thing, that love it, that'll talk about it, amazing. So we do a couple comics. They have quote-unquote anomalous success. And I'm looking at this like, if this is considered a win, we have a real problem. Like we're never going to get anywhere. The, the numbers are ridiculous. So if Spider-Man were to just smash it, smash it, smash, it's 150,000 units. Okay. That's nothing. Yeah. There's no money in that. You cannot scale a business. So I was just like, whoa. So I started asking myself, is anybody doing this well? And then I happened to read a book called A Billion Wicked Thoughts. Okay. Now for anybody listening, it will curl your hair back. So I gotta I, check this out. Yes, you do. It is so good. I dude. can see your face. It's it, so good, it's... but it is not for the faint of heart because it was these Google engineers that said, you know, it's really a shame that we'll never be able to do a real sex study because everybody lies. Mm. Even when you tell them that it's gonna be anonymized, they're like, no way. And then they were like, wait a second. Google has just run a 15 year uh, massive mm. study on what people actually care about. Right. And we know what you're searching, oh you naughty boys. Oh my God. And girls it and everybody. Hilarious. Oh what God. people actually search for. I mean, absolutely hilarious. Don't and be checking my browser history. Dude. No way. Hilarious. <laughs> so it, people search for some weird stuff. And these guys were like, <laughs> oh, you know what's interesting is the Japanese are the only people that have been able to export their culture. And so they start talking in, in, in a certain format, animated format. And okay. so they start talking about it. And I was like, why? And so as I'm doing this comic book thing and I start realizing here, here's a stat that as a comic guy, it's going to blow your mind. You may be like, this is dumb, but here it is. The entire Western comic market, Batman, Spider-Man, Superman, X-Men, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Wonder Woman, Silver all Surfer, of it. Silver Surfer, everything, Silver Wolverine, Surfer. all oh, of it. Okay. Second favorite. All of it mm -hmm. is outsold by a single title in Japan called Demon Slayer. How's that possible? It's just they've done such a good job of exporting their style of storytelling. So when I read that, I realized, okay, Japan didn't get the memo that you're not supposed to say certain things or tell certain kind of stories. And so the Japanese ethos is uh, everybody's different. 
boys are one way, girls are another. If you're a 12-year-old boy, you're going to be something into something that's very different than a 65-year-old lesbian woman. And so we're going to give the 12-year-old boy what he wants, and we're going to give the 65-year-old lesbian woman what she wants, and they okay. will not look the same. And so here in America, we've tried to make one thing that pleases everybody and doesn't upset anybody. And the Japanese are like, that doesn't make any sense. And so they just kept making stories that 12-year-old boys like, 12-year-old girls like, 15-year-old boys like, like just, just really niche, tailoring. tons yep. of niche. Yep. And it just, it speaks so well to them that they just explode. And so now wow. anime dominates the animation market by a country mile. Manga absolutely demolishes Western comics, demolishes Western comics from a global market and even in the U.S., so I was just like, I've got to learn this format. And so I started buying manga like crazy, started watching anime like crazy in my 40s. And I went from barely knowing what it was to being obsessed and realizing like, this is really powerful. It, it is a really fascinating form of storytelling. How, how do you break down what, what defines that storytelling okay. versus i'll go as deep as you want please or you can stop me so well I'll, I'll, i'm gonna be the guy buying the manga collection next is what's right. about to happen is what it sounds amazing like. so western comics used to be the hero's journey would have been amazing that's why they popped off everything that you know now is all hero's journey stuff okay react structure a guy starts weak realizes he can do something special has to go on a journey where he almost loses his life he figures something out that allows him to beat the villain he brings it back to everybody else and Shares says this is what i learned right. that's the hero's journey classic been around for tens of thousands of years yeah somewhere in fact not somewhere i know exactly what happened in the 90s there was a company started called image comics and it was the best artists from uh, DC and Marvel mm. and they were all pissed about how little they were making and they said we're going to start our own company the problem was in comic books, there is speculation. So you get people collecting because they want the comics to be worth money over time. When these yeah. guys started their own thing, everybody was like, this is going to be the biggest thing ever. These comics are going to be worth a fortune. Uh -huh. So they all bought like 30 copies of every issue. Now, once you start printing 12 million copies of a book, it's never going to be worth anything because it's not rare. Right. And so all these people had all these comics and stores just started going out of business like crazy because they overbought. They ended up being worthless because people quickly realized, wait a second, there's just waves flooding the market. Mm -hmm. And so you even had distributors folding. And so now there's wow. this massive consolidation in the industry. You end up with only one distributor, which just already is going to be a problem because there's no competition. So you have one distributor and you have all these people that um, realize we need to make comics for the audience that we have. And so we're going to effectively give up on kids because kids are a big question mark. You have to constantly innovate, hmm. do new things. You never know what they're going to like. And so they said, we're just going to make comics for the people that exist. And that was fine until about 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And then it was like, so many of your people have aged out and died. Kids are all on cell phones. They're no longer paying attention to what you're doing. But the Japanese didn't do that. They created this entirely fascinating mechanism where they would put out this thick-ass book called Shonen Jump is the most popular, but it's like 30 of them. Shonen Jump. And every week, they would ask you to vote on your favorite serialized comic. So mm -hmm. it would come out in, I think, 19 pages. So you get 19 pages of the comic every week in a book with like 20 of them. So 20 different comics, each with 19 pages, and then you vote. And whatever the top 15 are, they're gonna be the same next week and the bottom five get replaced. Amazing. And they just do that over and over for decades. And so now- Optimization. Yeah, literally. Makes Facebook ads look like a joke. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Physics of progress. Yeah. So 
they just kept bringing in kids. And so they remained super relevant, whereas the Western comic markets become hyper-political. You have like the high-selling comics are going to be about Trump or whatever. And so it's just like, dude, that that's not what kids want. Kids are going to be the most vibrant buyers. They're going to be the most passionate, most excited. You have to hit people in what's called the age of imprinting. This is okay. the final piece from the uh, Billion Wicked Thoughts. Talk about this thing called the age of imprinting, 11 to 15. It's where the brain is in a certain state that you're no longer just influenced by your parents. In fact, you start to reject them. You start to be influenced by the culture. This is why you form your deepest love with the music that you love when you're 11 to 15 will be the music you love when you're 45. The Your favorite movie franchise is going to be your favorite movie franchise when you're 45. Mm. So it's just it. your brain is going through something right. where it takes in deeply the value system of the culture. And so... When you have all these books that are aimed at you at that age, then you fall in love with Naruto. You fall in love with One Piece. You fall in love with Bleach. And so these become the dominant stories. And because the U.S. wasn't making stories for kids in that format, and the Japanese were, kids just started gravitating towards that in the mm. form of first of anime. Then they realized, oh my God, this is different. This is better. And so then they started importing the manga. And it's just like, it's the classic, man. You have to always be prospecting for new people. You've got to keep that customer base fresh. Well, we don't really even have, we're still, we're still talking about super, superheroes that were created 100 years ago, basically, right? We're still talking about... In Japan, it's different, man. Demon Slayer, fresh, fresh Demon Slayer is fresh off the presses. I love the fact that these guys were literally optimizing and A-B testing publicly, letting the kids pick their favorites. Obviously, that's what I would do if I owned the comic book company. Here, guys, we're going to create our 20 best, and then we're going to pick the top. Yep. And then, let me see if I can piss off your audience. Let's do it. They're going to pay you peanuts for the privilege of being in their magazine. Mm -hmm. And only if you're successful mm -hmm. will you make money off of what you were calling graphic novels. They call Tonka Bonds. Okay. So you make your money off the Tonka Bond. And if you get to that point, you'll make money hand over fist. And their 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 successful authors make millions. Yeah, the unsuccessful people work around the clock until their health deteriorates into nothing. They grind you into a fine powder and spit you out. But that's how they make the greatest comic art form on planet Earth right now. It's death match. It's a comic death yeah. match. And the only winner is the customer. <laughs> What do we have in the U.S. that looks like this? I think video games would probably be the closest thing that we have where it's like what we are doing is unbelievably good. And when you look at something like Grand Theft Auto, which mm. Grand Theft Auto 6 is about to hit the market, cost them a billion dollars to make. can only imagine how many marriages oh they ruined, ruined as they uh, you know, work round the <laughs> clock and so we're building our first video game now i have so much empathy you're building companies. a video game. yeah yeah it's brutally difficult it is harder than manufacturing that was easy compared to building a video game i'm not kidding now it if you have expertise maybe it's easier because it's not as physical right but we didn't have expertise in manufacturing that was easier to figure out and we had to manufacture our own equipment whereas this it and it's all the difficulties about to go away because AI is just going to solve all these ah, problems. You could fill in the but, gaps a lot yeah, faster. But I, I came in at a time. AI was non-existent and we just had to build everything from scratch. And because um, I needed to get the knowledge in-house, it was very hard to get expert, experts because nobody knew who we were. So we're like a no-name company. So oh, like, trying to hire. Gonna, yeah, why yeah. am I going to work for you? So we had to figure this all out on our own until we had something we could show. And then I could start pilfering people. But dude, getting to that point was brutal. 
brutal. Hey, kids, you think a Ferrari's expensive? Let Tom tell you how much his video game costs. Oh, you don't even want to know. You don't want to know. So, I mean, uh, I think I already said this, but it cost a billion dollars to get um, GTA GTA 6 to market. Uh-huh. Your average AAA game is probably going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of $200 million. Are you serious? Yeah, dude. You, you can't imagine. The number of people that touch a single character to get it in the game. Just the character. Not the background. Just the character. Yeah. It's going to be probably eight or nine people. <laughs> and and all of them, by the way, are extraordinarily brilliant. Because yeah, they're they brilliant. Hard. Oh, my God. This makes yachts look cheap. Yeah, it's crazy. It really does. It's crazy. And, and if with a video game, it's kind of like, it's one of those things I feel like where you never know when you're done. It's like a masterpiece, right? Yeah. And do you ever go, and the last pixel has been placed? We don't. So I've taken a very different strategy, and this may not work. This may end up blowing up in my face. But what we're doing is we see it as a, so the best manga is like a soap opera. It's always changing, always evolving, just unfolding before you. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to build a video game that had a similar vibe. So I'm basing it off Ready Player One, the book, not the movie. But if you read the book, it, it hints at something that is the natural result of the collision of the blockchain and AI. It's an emergent phenomenon I call borderless entertainment. And once we understood what borderless entertainment was going to be, which is where uh, the game is a living world, so it's constantly updating and evolving Mm. because AI lets you make changes so fast. Mm. So if you have a maze in your game, you can do a maze every hour, a maze every day. You could do maze at the press of a button. So AI makes things like that just very, very fast to iterate. The characters are going to be driven by AI. So you'll actually have a relationship, a unique one-to-one relationship with the characters in the game. They'll have memory about you, choices that you've made. I mean, it really mm. gets crazy. So it's a living world. There are so um, the, the borders that people think about begin to fall away. So uh, it's not just going to be on your console. It's actually going to be in real life. So as AR spins up, you'll be able to play the game at home. We're tracking everything that you're doing in the game. But then as you generate... Uh, blockchain items, digital assets, as you go out into the real world, if you're, uh, like, let's just use Harry Potter. If you're in Harry Potter and you're in um, Gryffindor house, Mm -hmm. I can trigger an AR event for you whenever you walk by a subway station, just to Harry Potter theme it, right? And now I can do something where if you don't see that AR experience, you won't have a piece of a puzzle that you need to solve a puzzle back in the game. And so the game is being handed off mm-hmm. between the real world and the game world and back seamlessly. Uh, and then the last part is because of AI, it's going to be completely tailored to you. So the memory that I was talking about with the AI characters. So because we're building this game that will never really end, there's no end like that. There's phases. So there'll be a season or whatever that will have a story arc within it. Uh-huh. But that's just going to lead to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. Um, we wanted to start releasing it in phases. So phase one was an avatar creation engine. So you okay. just create your avatar. And then there was a, uh, if I do uh, pat myself on the back here for a second, a very clever text-based game hidden as a computer hack, okay. which makes sense in the story. And so people were able to build their avatar. I think that the avatar is second to none. Some people disagree with me on that, but I stand firm. I really do think it is the best given all the the different things that everybody has to compromise on. Uh, I feel we made the (laughs) smartest compromises. Um, But then as we open the world, then we'll launch the first stage of the world and then the next stage, next stage, next stage. And so it'll be a world that is 
eternally expanding. So if, if people have read Ready Player One, the book, they can literally predict my moves. Um, because that to me, Ernest Klein wrote to, he could feel the emergent phenomenon of borderless entertainment coming. The only thing he got wrong is he put everything in a visor and it won't be VR. That'll just mm. be one of the ways in sure. which people interact. And some people may never get into VR just because of the disorientation. Right. Um, so that won't really matter. But the idea that you live in the world, that will be real. People will feel like they inhabit the game world. And this is just, this is just going to keep going. It, it will accelerate very, very rapidly. But if you want to get into AI, now we can talk about where all this is going. So Shall we? I wrote, Shall we? I wrote a comic about this three years ago, four years ago, called Neon Future. Okay. And it was a techno-optimistic take on what happens with a world where AI and cybernetics begin getting infused into humans. Cybernetics meaning steering? You're becoming a cyborg. So, mm. which is already happening right now. So if people know Elon Musk's company, Neuralink, they're literally putting things in people's brains to let them walk again or sure. give them sight or hearing or whatever. Cochlear implants. I mean, this is, this is all happening. Yep. And I predict that there will come a moment where government regulation comes down like a hammer and the world bifurcates. And there are people with technology that want to continue to get technology implemented and, and they will continue moving towards AI and moving towards actually being um, cyborgs. And then there are people who will move in the exact opposite direction and they'll go back to somewhere in say the 90s and they'll freeze technology there. So you still have phones, you still have AC, air conditioning, stuff like that. But you don't have the internet, not in the way that we have it now. And they'll just draw some sort of hard line and say, yeah, Technology is actually more dangerous than it's worth. And those two um, species, if I may be so bold, mm. will split. And the odds of them being at war with each other border on 100%. Now, this all assumes that AI doesn't become sentient and we create artificial super intelligence and this all becomes right. a moot point because we never get there anyway. Right. Um, we get terminated yeah. right before. Yeah, it's very possible. The, the thing is, I see, I see the the struggle of the state right now with co combined crypto with AI. It's just it it's a tense moment. Yep, it like it's palpable, right? Because the state becomes irrelevant very quick under this paradigm. Yeah, I don't think it'll ever become irrelevant, but it will. Well, no, not without a not without a fight. Um, that's when violence comes back. Not only not without a fight, I don't think we will ever, I don't think we want to escape the state. And I think that's what people will realize very quickly. And just like in the early days of web three, all everybody was just about the DAOs decentralization. I feel like a crazy man. Cause I'm like, decentralization isn't going to be the thing. What about the physical state? What about cities and, and, and states and countries and things like that? I think they will exist. I think humans crave protection. But when, when there's wealth created in these pockets, let's pretend there's a bifurcation of a cyborg and then the cyborgs are going to be rich as fuck. Yeah. And those guys who are rich as fuck can afford their own protection. Right. You assume. So then they might establish another state. You know, they might carve out a piece of either the U S or we're going to go out and in the, get a little Island, or Saint, Mars, St. Lucia, go to Mars, yeah. whatever. You've got some options as a cyborg. I think the state, the state is, is the thing that should be, and I think is clinging 
harder than anything. Right but the now. state is just us. So I think that the state is a, an emergent phenomenon of humans in large groups. I don't think it ever goes away. And if you look back through history, you have large groups of people ruled by force or ruled by governments. And governments have a monopoly on violence. And while they can become tyrannical and at times spill over into, I'd rather just have a strong man uh, overseeing me, mm. it, it, it is an emergent phenomenon from humans. It's not something imposed from the outside. It is something that arises from within. And because that is true, until we are no longer humans, like maybe the cyborgs don't have this problem because they dial back the emotion chip or whatever, or they get into some sort of hive mind, who knows? Uh, but as long as we are human, you're going to have the emergence of either strong men who create government out of fear and force or a big government of a, you know, a more distributed nature mm. uh, that rule people through force and fear, hopefully some you know, honey along the way as well. And yeah, I mean, it's just once you start reading about human history, you realize, oh yeah, there's no escaping this, none. I think the systems that emerge have different properties in the individuals at some point because there's where we see this clash. It's not like a clash of like some unwashed underlings trying to battle the government. It's like right now there's a lot of really smart, really rich people who are really concerned about the direction that the state is taking. Mm. Um, and that should probably continue to get tighter and more uncomfortable as time goes along and technology continues to become a medium that in its own right is more powerful than any state. It's, it's limitless what you could achieve with your own, very own, supercomputer, right? It's limitless what you could achieve with your very own AI and your and your little quantum computer laptop. You can solve basically any problem, right? So you're like, what the fuck am I paying, paying these guys? Yeah, I mean, look, it, this is where it can start to get really weird. We'll, we'll depart a little bit from the relevance of the state as we get into, okay, so let's say that AI exists. Let's say that computers really can't generate um, 3D objects, 3D worlds that are absolutely indistinguishable mm. from real life even before you have to jack in your nervous system i think people will spend so much time living in a virtual world that it will become more important what happens in the virtual world and what you'll worry about is access to power and there's it's really interesting how many of these ideas are are touched on in comic books i unfortunately don't remember the name of this comic but there's a comic that took this exact stance that there are these virtual people. I can't remember if they upload their consciousness, but there's virtual consciousnesses inside of a computer okay. and they have to broker a deal with the people in the real world because they need them for power. Because okay. if they don't keep the computers running, the computer goes down and, and that's their version of Armageddon. Mm -hmm. Like it's just everybody dies. And so it was like this really fascinating thing of like, how do you negotiate with somebody when they've got their hand in your power plug? And so, and the way you do it is drones and things like that. But it's, it's really, really interesting. And we will, some edge of these ideas, we will almost certainly have to deal with in our time. So whether it's that uh, AI becomes sentient, and so now it has to negotiate with us for access to power, hmm. or it doesn't negotiate and it uh, does whatever the fuck over, it wants, manipulates us, whatever, right. um, or we ourselves find ourselves in that where we create our own private universes and so yeah. we care now i don't i don't really care what laws the government passes as long as i can generate money inside 
you know, the virtual world, it becomes basically like the ultimate globalization because now it's whatever exists inside of the virtual world. And the question I always ask people when they talk about, you know, is where will Bitcoin be? Is it really going to be a real thing or not? Ask yourself one simple question. Will tomorrow be more or less digital than today? Yeah. As long as the answer is more digital, which right now we have no reason to believe it will be anything, but as long as the answer is tomorrow will be more digital than it is today, everything will go digital. And one of those everythings is money. And so then it becomes, to your point, a battle about whether the states are going to be like, okay, we want a CBDC and that's that. We're going to force you to use it. And they try to use, uh, you know, the big hammer, which they will do. Cause like you said, they're not going to give this up without a fight. But now once I'm spending most of my time in a virtual world, where are the boundaries? Right. Ooh, so, but that's so, Oh, that's just such a, a morphine drip. Oh, you know what? The outside world is such a fucking messed up piece of shit. Let me recede into yeah. my digital playground. Anything can be a dystopia. So whether it ends up being dystopian or not will be entirely up to us. I think there are way more ways that it goes wrong than that it goes right. And given how much devastation social media has wreaked upon us, um, all of us are going to have to take responsibility for ourselves to figure out what's good, what's bad. But look, as somebody creating a virtual world, I think about this a lot. How do I make sure that your encounters with Project Kaizen actually make your life better, like your IRL life better. Mm. And so our mantra is if you're winning at Project Kaizen, you should be winning in real life. Mm. So the very things that you do and learn inside of the game should be applicable to the outside world and should make your relationships better, should make your pursuits and passions better. But that won't happen by accident. It's going to be hard as hell. Right. Well, I mean, that's the biggest criticism of social media is, oh, my social skills have slipped. Oh, I, I don't even like ordering coffee in a public place. Yeah. Oh, you know, I, I just making friends and keeping them is getting a lot harder. Depression is spiking. Bro. Bad, bad stuff. And it's funny, as we're sitting here, I'm like picturing the alien mothership watching this conversation just going, you idiots, like you're already in it. You're already in it. Well, can I give you the answer to uh, the Fermi paradox? Sure. All right, so the Fermi paradox, for those that haven't heard of it, is, okay, if the, the number of habitable planets is in the billions, mm -hmm. um, why is the universe not teeming with life? I am, I am not the expert on this, so I'm just popping off here, but I think a very real hypothesis that needs to be considered is that every civilization ends up creating dreams that they can live in. And once you have a dream that you can live in in the form of a virtual world, why would you seek other alien life forms like sure maybe you'd be curious in the way that we're curious about ants but i have a feeling that just like social media causes people to give up on a lot of classic stuff that as you get these more and more realistic worlds you can tailor exactly to your personal fantasies it just becomes hard to mount uh, a thing where you're going to go and explore the solar system or the galaxy at large because you can create something far more um psychologically potent right there at home by creating a virtual world and tapping your nervous system into it. As we could do a Diet Coke version of that right now, right? But we still choose to push in the real world. That thing, I think that thing doesn't go away. What thing? What's that thing? That thing that you still say, there's nothing that beats a walk along the beach. Hmm. I think life is going to disappoint you with that one. God damn, dude. If you said Don't that, do that to me. 
if you said that um, people would still seek meaning and purpose, that one I will give you. But the walk on the beach, remember my ultimate thesis is society will bifurcate and some people will say, I'm never going in VR, ever. I'm not gonna live in a virtual world that's just stupid. And they will only walk on the beach and they will do all of those things. But you'll get a split. There will be people who are like, that doesn't make any sense. But, but there's folks like us, we have our hands in both camps right now, right? Like, so I'm involved in AI, obviously social media, yourself included, but it seems as though we have a relatively balanced sort of purpose-driven life where we haven't receded into a masturbatory uh, paradise uh, virtual world. And I'm pretty sure you could get one built in here if you wanted to. Yeah, just we're, the technology. <laughs> pretty sure isn't there's there like yet, you could do it if you want. Right, it did fit, but uh, <laughs> no, I just don't think the tech is there. And as the tech becomes available, if it's done well, then it can really elevate you. So take social media in my life. Social media is only a benefit. It's responsible for so much of my wealth and success. So many of the opportunities, the people I've met, the things that I've learned. It's unreal but I don't, I have rules. And so I don't violate my rules. My wife is my priority. I spend time with her. But if I could create an experience that gave me more of a sense of deep meaning, purpose, awe, wonder, why wouldn't I? Those are all the things that we say we like. So it ultimately comes down to a battle of, is something valuable only because it is quote unquote real or if you can construct something that has struggle and challenge and difficulty and you're growing and you're learning at like the mm. optimal rate and you're contributing and people's lives are better because of your contributions and they're sentient AI. And so even though they're AI, man, you're making their life better. We're just meat AI as far as I can tell. So look, I think it is highly dangerous. And I think the thing that I am sort of flippantly describing is like, no, it's gonna be amazing. I think there are a thousand ways to do it wrong and only one way to get it right. Mm. So. I think it's hyper dangerous. I think people need to take it very seriously. But I also think it is an emergent phenomenon that you cannot stop. I don't think there's a way to stop it. You can slow it down for sure, but you will not be able to stop it. And so this is just what humans do. On a long enough timeline, humans are going to create artificial superintelligence, period. What we're, what we're talking about in a sense is kind of like the book White Noise. It's like we create the perfect entertainment that sucks you in and basically kills you, right? Like... We, where you just, I mean, some people, but there are like, you know, that it's not going to be me. Exists. That's what I'm saying. So some people will, and it may be, uh, that AI is the great filter for a certain personality type, but for some people it won't for some, and then people, that's an evolutionary moment, isn't it? Charles Darwinism's like, Charles Darwin's like, dude, I didn't think of this. It's like. You guys are just like getting sucked into your virtual worlds and never coming coming out, coming up for air. I don't know, man. I'm looking at you across this desk and you're building virtual worlds. And I something in my heart tells me that you would love to have one foot here in the real world. I'm not trying to escape the real world. So I have no pushback on that whatsoever. But I also don't have any way to tell you that that won't become so much more meaningful in my life and the lives of others that I don't find myself pushing harder into that direction. Now, the only thing that gives me pause is I don't see a way around the body. And so my body is going to need to exist. I'm going to need to care for it. 
a biological entity sitting in yeah. a chair somewhere. Yeah. And yeah. if you, there, I don't think there is any such thing as uploading your consciousness. So if you do that, it would be the same as cloning yourself. Mm -hmm. And even if your clone lives forever, you still die. So if people are doing that out of the, out of the anxiety that they're going to die, you're not going to solve the problem with that. So you still have to deal with that one. The old body problem. The old body. The problem. Ivan Drago. If he dies, he dies. Such a good line. <laughs> I use it too much in my own personal endeavors. Look, man, um, it's just starting to get good and we've got to go. God, this sucks. Uh, thank you for making this uh, a special LA trip, having me in your studio. I really appreciate you, man. And thanks for getting me started in this crazy talking to people on camera thing. Um, hope to see you soon, dude. Yeah, it was awesome. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for having me in your studio and letting me play Impact Theory for a day. My pleasure. Catch you soon, man.